And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. Kevin Sherrod, Senior Pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Uh, Kevin, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thanks for having me, Dan. I'm glad to be here. The um, issue of abortion keeps coming up since a couple of more conservative-leaning judges have been put on the Supreme Court, it seems that the states are bracing themselves for a possible uh, ruling regarding Roe v. Wade. Who knows if that'll ever come? But um, the states, uh, New York and Virginia, seem to be steeling themselves against any uh, loss of a woman's right to abort the baby uh, in her womb. Now, um, we're Christians, and so in some way, we see the politics, uh, we know that we can't ignore it, Christ is ruler over everything, but we also see the law of God, and the grace of Jesus Christ, and all of that that flows from the scriptures. So, um, you followed this abortion debate uh, for years now. And uh, so you're kind of an ideal <laughs> candidate to talk with about this this whole thing of abortion and the the states, the states' rights, the the federal, all of that. So could you get us started? And this is kind of like a, a visit into your study. It's, it's we don't have any questions laid out already, and we'll just see what comes out of this discussion today. Um, sure, Dan. I guess we could start. Uh, I'm not. Um you know, a legal expert, but I know enough about the situation, having watched it for years, to to know that what is reported is often not fully accurate. And, it, and I think another thing that's important on this debate is to speak accurately, to strip the debate of uh, euphemisms and, and, a, and a sort of kind of double speak, which uh, masks the grim reality of what's actually going on. Um, even even though we might not be able to do away at this point with the word abortion, it itself is a euphemism. I mean, it's technically true that the pregnancy is aborted, but I, I've always felt that we would be better off speaking of child killing. Uh, now, they may not let you on the networks with that language, but um, even to capitulate on that word is to mask what's going on, right? Um, so part of what Christians want to do is to not allow the state to foist Orwellian uh, lies on us, right? Uh, 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 language about choice or about reproductive health or about equality, or about termination of pregnancy. All of that language is antiseptic language, which hides the simple fact um, that we're talking about child killing. Now, now Roe, <clears throat> Roe v. Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision, which legalized abortion, you know, said that in the first trimester, the state may not prescribe or prohibit uh, abortion in any way. In the second trimester, a state could prescribe it, but not prohibit it. it could, you could have laws to constrict it somewhat in the second trimester. And in the third trimester, and this is where a lot of confusion has been, I think, with the, uh, the Virginia law and the New York law, 
Uh, in the third trimester, a state could prohibit except if the mother's life, and this is the key point here, except if the mother's life or health were in danger. And what was what has happened, and this is rooted right in the text of Roe v. Wade in, in uh, the majority uh, Justice Harry Blackman's decision, health is defined broad enough uh, so that it accomplishes, you know, uh, emotional health or economic health. And so the idea of the mother's health being jeopardized has essentially given us an abortion, a killing on demand regime uh, through all nine months of pregnancy. So what what it appears to me uh, with New York and Virginia's laws is that they're trying to say, we want everything Roe gives us. Right. And um, now um, these these uh, abortions in the third trimester are about one point two or one point three percent of all abortions. But that's still 10 to 12,000 children killed per year in the third trimester. Um, And I don't think it's accurate to suggest that in all of these cases, or even in the vast majority of them, the mother's life is at risk. There's a there's a 2013 Guttmacher study, and the Guttmacher Institute is is a uh, a pro-abortion institute. You know, their their Planned Parenthood's research arm, which explicitly says that women are in fact not choosing these abortions uh, for either cases of of grave deformity or the mother's life. This is highly contested stuff, but for Christians. There's a there's uh, a certain clarity that scripture brings to this, and I think we want to focus on that, you know, Christian way of thinking about this decision, even if um, we might contest a detail here or there about the way me or somebody else has interpreted a law and about how many exact how exactly. Uh, the percentage of third trimester abortions, what what percentage is tied to, uh, you know, a direct threat on maternal life? Uh, From what I've read, that's an infinitesimally small amount. Um, But in any case, if you think about Roe, and and there's other cases, companion cases that have affirmed it, Casey versus Planned Parenthood, it's really, the, the decision rests on three pillars, all of which are dubious, Right. One is viability, which is completely arbitrary from a Christian point of view. It carries no moral weight. Um, God always has a, quote, compelling interest in the life of the unborn child. He doesn't get a compelling interest at the age of viability. There's no moral or, uh, you know, ontological, uh, metaphysical having to do with being. There's no moral change or in, in the status of that child between, say, 23 weeks and 24 weeks. It's a completely arbitrary line. And what was viability in 1973 has been pushed up such that we can keep much younger children alive outside the womb. So it's it's an extraordinarily capricious sort of standard. The second thing is this idea of a right to privacy, you know, which the justices found famously in what they call the emanations of the penumbra of the Bill of Rights. So it's not in the Bill of Rights. It's not in the penumbra. The penumbra are the partial shadows cast by the moon during an eclipse. So where's the right to privacy? Well, it's not in the text of the Bill of Rights. 
It's not in the partial shadows cast from the Bill of Rights, but it's in the emanations of the partial shadows cast from the Bill of Rights. Oh, my. That, that's where the right to privacy was fabricated. Uh, so we, we now have justices, which on many cases are literally just fabricating the law to get the outcome they want. And uh, so Christians, of course, think, uh, you know, we respect privacy legitimately understood, but there is no right to kill. Right? Nobody has any absolute right to privacy, and the child belongs not first to the mother or to the father, but to God. And it's a simple fact, but the doctrine of God as the creator and Lord of all life and owner of all things is fundamental here. Um, and uh, so, you know, the other pillar of Roe is this idea of personhood. Fourteenth uh, Amendment protection for persons was denied to unborn children. They were not considered now uh, persons in the whole sense. And uh, there's very good reasons for us as Christians to reject that. And I'm happy to talk about those those reasons from Holy Scripture if you'd like, Dan. Oh, sure. Uh, sure. You know, I was thinking as you were talking, I was taking notes, too. Very helpful. Um, I was thinking of two cases in history where we've seen this before in Scripture. Uh, one more recent was that of Herod during the time of Christ, right. uh, where he ordered the killing of children two years of age and under. And the other that came to mind was Pharaoh, right. uh, how that uh, he didn't want these Jewish people multiplying. And yeah. It yeah. was just evil in those days, and it's evil today. It's evil to directly attack an innocent human life. Uh, we wouldn't kill children with deformities outside the womb. I don't know why we have a situation where we think killing children with deformities inside the womb is not monstrous either. Um, but, you know, if you step back and look at the broad picture of this, it's true the Bible doesn't speak directly to it, but it speaks quite powerfully and cumulatively to it through the idea that God is the sovereign creator and the author of life, uh, and that humans are creatures and they are responsible and dependent, and that you know creatures are made in the image of God. Uh, they reflect his, they are the breath, if you will, of God. Um, and we see from the earliest times, so, so the idea that male and female are made in the image of God is a root idea in Christian revelation. And based on that idea, human bloodshed, we see this in Genesis 9, is an assault on the image of God. Now, let me uh, interrupt you and ask really quickly. Um, we have pets. I don't currently, but in the past we've had. We have a dog, let's say, or a cat. We really mm -hmm. enjoy these pets. They're they're. As sure. you know, a man, man's best friend is a dog, it's been said. But um, when you say that humans are made in the image of God, um, can you draw out the distinction a little bit more? These are, these are more than just pets. Yeah. Right. The human being has a soul. It has a capacity to love God, to praise God, to articulate in language that love for God, to receive in a cognitive uh, uh, way and in a way that deals with uh, their will, um, the, the, uh, the truth and the beauty and the goodness that God is and, uh, and thus uh, has capacities and gifts from God that transcend the animals. Um, you could not do to a dog 
with these laws in Virginia and New York want done to a third trimester baby. That's a very good point. There would be massive outrage if you did it to a dog or a cat. So we are completely opposite, right? We have a party in America now which will – which would demonize you and jail you if you did to a cat what the laws in Virginia and New York will allow you to do to a 38, 39, 40-week term fetus, living human person. Um, So part of, frankly, the judgment of God on people who do this is he gives them over to a kind of depraved, inverted mind. One of the things that seems palpably obvious to me is that we are now in a realm of moral discourse where uh, relatively minor evils become monstrous and and monstrous evils are just a yawn. Yeah, well put. Or, 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 or if not just a yawn, they're in fact virtues or accepted as goods or as legitimate liberties, right? And so the the whole um, screen through which we see reality has everything out of proportion. And uh, part of the Christian duty to think clearly in this setting is to go back to Scripture and, you know, to remember that the biblical view is that people— known and loved by God, are conceived, not some subhuman entity that later becomes human. Here we're getting to the nub of the issue, right? Mary is found to be with child, not with, you know, protoplasmic mass that will later become child, right? It is a boy or a girl that is conceived. Elizabeth conceives a son and is considered a mother at conception. In the Psalms, David speaks of his nature going back to the time he was conceived by his mother. He even says, I I, I had a sinful nature, and it goes back to my conception in the womb. And even more famously and beautifully, we have Psalm 139. Our listeners might want to look that up if they're not familiar with it. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16, thereabouts, we have God fashioning and knitting with great skill in the depths of the earth, which is a metaphor for the womb, uh, the, the the unformed yet you know substance, but it's David's substance. It's me. It was my it was my being and existence that God was forming in the womb. And so, sure, does the life have potential? Yes, but it's not a potential life. It's a life with potential, and the fact that it's a life with potential gives it present value. And and so we have, and throughout the scriptures, for example, Isaiah speaks of being named from the womb. Paul is set apart for his apostolic ministry from his mother's womb. Jeremiah is known by God and consecrated before he was formed in the Mm. womb, right? And so uh, this is not that difficult, which is why, of course, the child slaughter party, which is what we should call the abortion party, Right? It is why they must rely on euphemisms and indirect language. Right? In, in Luke 1, for example, in, verse, uh, in, in, the, in this, this story of uh, Elizabeth's visit to the mother of our Lord, the baby, Brephos, Brephos the baby, mm-hmm. the child, leapt 
in in Mary's womb, and uh, and so that's the same word later used of the baby being wrapped and lying in a manger. So uh, in the biblical writers' minds, there's a complete caution. Um, you know, Bernard Nathanson was a was a very prominent abortionist in New York, active in NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League, one of the real um, agitators for the liberalization of abortion laws in the 60s. And uh, Nathanson later, uh, through sonogram technology, actually, as it developed into the 70s and 80s, Nathanson converted to the pro-life cause. And in fact, later after that, converted to the Christian religion. But uh, Nathanson himself used to say, there's no bar mitzvah in the womb. Right? There's, there's just a continuity of a living, developing human being. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the Torah, even in Exodus 21, if you accidentally harm an unborn child, right, there's a penalty. Like you're, you're fighting with someone and you bump into yeah. a pregnant woman, right? So the scriptures are pretty clear. Uh, and by the way, and, and this is, you know, if we want to be people of science, this is a, a clear case. Scriptures and the science are, are completely harmonious. There, nothing even remotely suggests that the unborn child is anything but human and is known and loved and ascribed personhood and even called by God. He belongs, again, ultimately not to the parents or not to the state. And so, you know, one of the things I'm eager about in this issue, Dan, is that the people that are in the public eye that are talking about the debate, Christian people need to be clear about these sort of these fundamental things. I often find that too much ground is seeded in just the way the debate occurs, you know, and, and um, so anyway, that is, I think, a quick uh, scriptural overview. And once you establish that and you we know that God hates the shedding of innocent blood, that's a relatively easy point to establish throughout scripture. Then you have to. um take a stance for life, you know, and show concern for these, the poorest, the weakest, the most helpless among us. Yeah, it's all very helpful, extremely helpful. Today we're talking with Dr. Kevin Sherritt. He is senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Kevin has followed this debate on abortion for all all of his adult life, it seems. And Kevin, I like the fact that um, you take serious the definitions of words and how that even the word abortion itself is a capitulation. Uh, it really should be called child killing. Um, right, imagine, Dan, I don't mean to interrupt you, but just imagine if on every news show you saw the pro-life person were to say um, – you know, substitute the word abortion with child killing, right? And and if the news were to report it that way, now that might sound harsh to people. People, some of our listeners may think may cringe at that. But if that is the reality here, right? Abortion itself has become a term of veiling and 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 masking. Yes. And uh, and so uh, even to talk about pro life, pro abortion. Is to is to already tilt the scales of the debate. Oh, that's an excellent as, point. As if you had two equal choices, and they're both just viewing it differently, right? One side wants, defends, protects mass, multi-million in numbers, child slaughter. The other side opposes it, um, and that is 
that has to be made clear. Um, and it would be clear if it was, like we said, if we were talking about dogs and cats or you were talking about some other issue, it would be clear that no one would say, well, I just think the owner of the dog should make the choice if they want to dismember and hack their dog to pieces. I'm, I'm pro-choice on that. Yes. I mean, it wouldn't fly in that issue, but for some reason, it, it, it works on this issue. Another thing that comes to my mind is that um, our own Governor Cuomo uh, claims to be a Roman Catholic adherent, um, and yeah. the, um, the bishop over him, um, I don't think he has taken the steps to excommunicate uh, Andrew Cuomo. Yeah, I don't think so either. I haven't followed it that closely, largely because I have not seen any willingness on the part of the hierarchy to deal with this since the 70s. Uh, there's example after example after example of politicians. And I understand from the bishop's point of view, there are some complexities involved and the like. Um, you know, a person... Uh, might put forth some justifications that the church would have to look at. But the point is, um, I agree. I don't think the church has done what it needs to do. It seems to me that it's impossible. And again, I speak as one who's not a Catholic. But, um, you know, in other traditions, at least in the one I'm in, I believe that such a politician who was going by the name of Reformed and Presbyterian, uh, we would be under an obligation you know, to uh, engage in a process of either bringing forth a change of heart and mind or removal, uh, excommunication from the church. Um, So, yes, you're right on that. And it's been a a big disappointment that the churches have capitulated in even churches which haven't formally capitulated. They are pro-life in their position, have pastorally capitulated uh, with their politicians. Yes. Our daughter is a RN, and uh, RNs, um, as well as doctors, uh, generally speaking, love life. They love to help people. They love to cure, as it were, (laughs) people, Mm -hmm. administer medicines, care for uh, those even who are dying. And uh, it's it's a wonderful field. It's, a, it's just a wonderful field for a Christian to get into, that of being a doctor or a nurse. In the last two minutes remaining, um, maybe we should encourage those who are listening, if you happen to be in health care, um, what you're doing is a wonderful thing, and uh, that is keeping people alive and promoting health and promoting the flourishing of individuals. No, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, among the many tragedies that um, this this culture of killing has brought is a it is it takes doctors who I don't know if they do it anymore, but they used to take the Hippocratic Oath and uh, and pledge to do no harm. Right. And uh, it makes doctors killers uh, and doctors are healers. You're right. They're generally wonderful people, compassionate people seeking to do good. Um, and I'm sure even the abortion doctors think they're doing good. But, you know, um, Augustine speaks of the fact that our, our loves and our will can be disordered, right? We can, we, can, we can do monstrous evils thinking we're being compassionate and thinking uh, we're doing good. 
And um, so, yes, I think it's a, a field that Christians should pursue. It's noble. It's excellent. The state, although has tried again to, you know, to clamp down on the rights of conscience here and the rights of hospitals and Catholic hospitals, there's, a, there's always this battle to preserve a, a, a pro-life culture in whatever institution you're in. And the medical field has been far from free of that battle, but it's a noble fight. It's a fight we have to engage in. And, um, and we want to be, and, 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 and this also goes to the woman faced with the decision, right? We want to be people who treat her with compassion and do everything we can to aid, to assist, to help, uh, even after the child's born, right? We, we want to be like the Good Samaritan. Uh, we want to, I want women to know that there's healing and forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ for any woman who may have, uh, under whatever circumstances, made this choice. So both things are important here to me, Dan. One is that we, we use the language that people don't want to use. I know it makes people cringe, we have to use it. But at the same time, uh, while I think we can have no pity on these abortion doctors, I think we have to have great pity on mothers who find themselves feeling like they have to make this choice. I don't want to at all sound cavalier or flip about what would bring a woman to feel that this is her only option. That sort of situation in this broken world is something we should have great pity and compassion on. And there are over 3,000, you know, crisis support centers uh, staffed without government funding uh, that that largely through the churches have been established to show Christ's kindness and his forgiveness and his assistance uh, to these women. Amen. Amen. I wish we could talk longer. We are out of time today. We've been talking with Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Senior Pastor, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern. Kevin, if someone would like to learn more about the church, maybe even strike up an email conversation with you, any contact information? Uh, they can find us online, Dan, if they just look for uh, westminsterchurch-ny.org. Excellent. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 